0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors ControlUp, end to end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by Policy Pack Software. Now part of NetRix, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Life comes at you fast in this IT game, so after last week's episode, just at the end of last week, Microsoft warned of two actively exploited zero-day vulnerabilities in Exchange. The vulnerabilities affect Exchange Server 2013, 2016, and 2019. The first flaw is a server-side request forgery vulnerability, while the second one allows remote code execution on a server when PowerShell is accessible to an attacker and the exploits for these vulnerabilities are being nicknamed proxy not shell. One qualifying factor is that SiliconRepublic.com reports authenticated access to a vulnerable exchange server is necessary to successfully exploit either vulnerability, which gives them an 8.8 out of 10 on the severity scale. At the time of this recording, there is no patch available but be sure to keep an eye out and grab that patch quickly. The vulnerabilities were first discovered by cybersecurity firm GTSC. This company said they were able to use exploits to create backdoors in affected systems and perform lateral movements to other servers in the system. Shortly after the announcement of the vulnerabilities, Microsoft recommended that customers disable remote PowerShell access for non-admin users And blocking and recommended blocking traffic for a certain auto discover syntax. But the InfoSec community came out with their knives drawn, suggesting that these mitigations were not sufficient as the mitigations could be easily bypassed. And it looks like Microsoft, at the time of this recording, have actually updated the auto discover syntax for blocking certain traffic. Uh, to match that of a member of the InfoSec community who derided the original suggestion. So uh, this is still very fluid. I'm sure there's going to be uh, more announcements soon, and hopefully there's going to be a patch forthcoming too. In a follow-up to the last two weeks of episodes where I covered the recently released Windows 11 2.2 H2 version and some of the issues that were reported related to that upgrade, there's actually been potentially there's actually been more issues highlighted. Uh, First, from Adam Gross on Twitter, who suggested that anyone who is running Hyper-V on Windows 11 and upgraded to 22 h 2 and had issues with virtual switches after their upgrade may need to rebuild all virtual switches, even the private internal ones, to get things working again. And I saw on that Twitter thread that multiple people confirmed that they had the same issue and had to take the same steps to restore their virtual networks. And also, announced just this week, is that there's a known issue with provisioning packages not working on Windows 22H2. It said that the issues with the provisioning packages, the .ppkg packages, failing for all devices running on Windows 11 2022 update, which means that any device imaged with 2022 RTM code are updated using Windows Update will not be able to enroll using provisioning packages until a fix is implemented. This issue causes the device to be stuck in the Autobox box experience process. During provisioning, the .ppkg gets applied, but Autobox box experience crashes and may lead to the device unexpectedly rebooting. Microsoft has said they're actively working on a fix for this and will keep everyone updated via the tech community. They suggest a workaround is if you're using .ppkg for bulk enrollment of Windows devices and experience this issue, you may downgrade to Windows 11 21 h 2 to use your .ppkg or enroll devices through Windows Autopilot." Now reading that, that does not seem like a very good fix. So hopefully this is something that get resolved with a better, more permanent solution soon. Google have been working on updating the standard manifest required for creating extensions in Google Chrome and other Chromium-based browsers, which requires developers who have created extensions to update and standardize on the new MV3 version. The Register reports that support for the current MV2 was set to end in January, but they have found that developers require more time to rewrite their code and standardize on the new version, so a six-month extension has been announced. MV3 apparently will allow extensions to run more efficiently, meaning less machine resources being chewed up by the browser. While Google is still moving forward to standardize on MV3 next year just later than expected, Brave and Mozilla have said they intend to continue supporting Manifest V2 extensions for an indeterminate amount of time. Brave and some others have been quite skeptical with a developer stating, quote, with Manifest V3, Google is harming privacy and limiting user choice, end quote. So it certainly seems to have people divided, but, I mean, the biggest bugaboo in the Chromium-based browsers is how they chew up resources, so, If MV3 can improve the amount of resources and reduce the amount of resources the browser uses, I would think that's going to be a big win. So I guess we'll have to wait and see uh, how quickly this is adopted by developers and also by these other browsers on the market. Microsoft announced that SQL Server 2022 Release Candidate 1 is now available. This... This release brings hybrid buffer pool with write, which is said to reduce the number of MEM CPY commands that need to be performed on modified data or index pages residing on the PMEM devices. There's also integrated acceleration and offloading in this release, which is said to use acceleration technologies from partners such as Intel to provide extended capabilities. There's also been several improved optimizations So if you'd like to check that out for yourself, you can download the RC or release candidate one for yourself today. AWS announced some pretty significant new features for Amazon WorkSpaces, including announced support for Ubuntu version 2204 LTS. They say that with this launch, Amazon WorkSpaces customers now have the flexibility to select Amazon Linux, Microsoft Windows, or Ubuntu desktops, depending on the specific needs for their end users. Customers can easily provision and scale Ubuntu workspaces for developers, data scientists, and engineers as high-performance cloud-based development desktops, or for other non-technical users as general-purpose desktops. In the announcement, they say customers can quickly launch Ubuntu desktops in their preferred configurations whenever they are needed and only pay for what they use. And since Ubuntu Desktop, Amazon Linux, and Microsoft Windows for Workspaces share the same management tools and processes, overhead and complexity is minimized when managing multiple desktop fleets. Ubuntu Desktop for Workspaces is available with the AWS SDKs and the latest tool chains for Python, Rust, Ruby, GCC, Go, PHP, and Perl, creating an ideal desktop environment for cloud-native and open-source development. And since this is the LTS version of Ubuntu, customers also get long-term stability and expanded security updates. The Ubuntu desktop for WorkSpaces is available already today in all regions where Amazon WorkSpaces is available, except for AWS China regions. To get this desktop, customers can enable Ubuntu desktops from the Amazon WorkSpaces console AWS API or AWS CLI alongside any existing managed Windows or Amazon Linux desktops and pay only for what is used with no upfront costs or software purchases required. AWS also announced Amazon Workspace's core cloud desktop and a partnership with Zoom too. And ChannelFutures.com reports that AWS is looking to expand its Amazon Workspaces desktop as a service portfolio with a new managed infrastructure only cloud VDI offering. AWS previewed Amazon Workspaces Core during its AWS End User Computing Innovation Day. And Channel Futures reports that Amazon Workspaces Core consists of APIs designed to bridge on premises VDI infrastructure to the AWS Cloud as a managed service. The WorkSpaces Core APIs enable integration with the AWS cloud to scale existing software. Notably, VDI software providers can integrate their offerings with WorkSpaces Core to extend their desktop images to the cloud. So that idea of image portability, taking those images from your on-prem VDI and lifting them into the cloud. Organizations can also scale their existing VDI infrastructure to supported AWS regions To reduce latency and boost performance and customers can opt for various hardware configurations from basic cpu instances to gpu-based workstation environments aws stated that extending your existing vdi management consoles to expand their workspaces with amazon workspaces gives you the benefit of continuity of what you've been doing on-prem with cloud-based economics and security and productivity that comes with it and longtime partner VMware is among those that plans to use the Amazon Workspace's core APIs, with VMware saying it would use the APIs to provide more extensive integration with VMware Horizon, and integrating the APIs will let VMware extend the Horizon experience and its blast display protocol to Amazon Workspaces. But AWS also announced a partnership with Zoom to improve the experience with enhanced Zoom meeting performance. The two companies are said to be working together to address the difficulty in rerouting video conferencing traffic to endpoints more directly. And a new Amazon Workspaces extension SDK bypasses virtual desktops to reduce latency and provide higher quality sessions. The package includes a VDI client, host installer, and Zoom media plugin. And AWS claims it securely offloads video encoding and decoding, bypassing the VDI infrastructure, and communicates directly to Zoom. So a lot to unpack there and a pretty big week for Amazon Workspaces. Following up from last week's Citrix news, I actually covered quite a bit of Citrix news over the last couple weeks, uh, but I covered a story about them rebranding back to Netscaler. Well, it appears that the branding of Sharefile and Zenserver is also going back to what it used to be. So Sharefile and Zenserver are back, baby. And with the acquisition now complete, I believe it was completed last Friday as of this recording, well, the cloud.com site is now referring to a cloud software group and includes Citrix, Sharefile, Zenserver, and Netscaler along with some other tipco offerings and products i guess now there was speculation over the last couple weeks that right after the acquisition was completed that there would be like serious disruption and like mass layoffs and while there isn't anything necessarily directly confirmed yet if you use some of the old sources like the layoff.com which you know People could post anonymously there, so it's not verified. It is pretty much just speculation. But the only kind of noticeable big change that I could see from the all-staff meeting that apparently happened on Tuesday morning was that it was announced that a lot of the Citrix employees will be expected to return to the office five days a week. So this is just rumor and speculation at this point. I don't have anything directly verified, so... That's just a rumor. It would be pretty shocking if that is the case uh, for Citrix in particular because the whole Citrix ethos is applications and work from anywhere. So I hope that's not the case because it's going to seriously hurt their branding, you know, rebranding back to the names that uh, we all preferred, like Netscaler, like Zen Server, and then hurting the brand by forcing employees to go back to work in the office is... You know maybe one step forward and two steps back uh but regardless i wish all the best to my citrite friends because definitely this is a time of uh, massive upheaval and disruption so i just wish everyone the best in some other citrix news and i'm sorry about this because it's quite delayed it was announced a while ago but citrix virtual apps and desktops version 2209 has been released And some of the highlights, at least in my opinion that are highlights, is that Citrix Studios, Citrix Virtual Apps and desktop's REST APIs are now in preview. And this provides you with a set of REST APIs that you can use to automate the management of resources within your CVAD deployment. And also for MCS, There's now machine catalogs with trusted launch and support for machine profiles in Google Cloud Platform. There's more Teams optimization changes, including a policy notification setting. And there's some EDT lossy transport support for audio and more. So for full details on what's included with this release, check it out for yourself. And I'll share a link with this episode, which is episode 250. And you'll find that at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode, or just by clicking on this episode as well. The Irish Times recently had a great article covering more of the updates from the Irish Health Systems cyber attack that happened last summer and what has changed there since. So you may remember that I've covered multiple different stories about this HSE cyber attack and the HSE cyber attack report that was published some time ago is a favorite of the awesome Kevin Beaumont, who is a security expert. He points to it as a really good reference for a very honest and comprehensive report of the failings and how the cyber attack occurred on the HSC. But in this article, they stated that a third party provided an antivirus monitoring service between the hours of 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. each day before the attack, with an on-call service outside of those hours. But since the attack, the HSE has put in place an enhanced monitoring service providing 24-hour support. They also reported that the cyber attack has cost the HSE almost 100 million euros so far, but this is expected to rise further. This includes 51 million euros in 2021 and 4.4 million euros in revenue costs and 2.6 million euros in legal costs in 2022. In addition, the HSE has secured an increase in its recurrent funding of 43 million euros for ICT expenditure in 2022, of which 38 million euros is for increasing its capability to deal with future threats. Consultants have estimated the service will need an additional 657 million euro investment over seven years for cyber for cybersecurity security improvements and just three of the 83 recommendations made by consultants pwc in a report on the cyber attack that was published last year has been fully implemented so some serious work to do and the report suggests it could take several years for them to implement a lot of the different recommendations. And to wrap up the news for this week, let's do some quick hit stories. First, Atman Fettel on Twitter posted about new lock objects capabilities in PowerPoint slides. So you're able to lock the objects on your PowerPoint slides to make working in PowerPoint a lot easier and more fun. You know, you're not going to get frustrated by overlapping objects and moving the wrong objects. So yeah, that's a nice improvement and probably a long time overdue. And Michael Wenger this week shared on Twitter that if you have an issue with Citrix Workspace app version 2207 on Windows or newer, with published applications suddenly losing focus, it's a known issue and there is a private fix for this version. You can reference the case NR81426905. So that's 81426905 with Citrix support, who will hopefully provide you with the private fix, which he says is a simple case of swapping out a DLL. My buddy Trenton Tide pointed out something that he observed on Microsoft's App V5 versions page under the MDOP articles, and this is that it states. Note, application virtualization 5.1 for remote desktop services will be end of life on January 10th, 2023. Please upgrade to a supported version such as AppV 5.0 with Service Pack 3 prior to this date. Now, uh, Microsoft have actually updated the end of life or end of support for the AppV products to 2026, but it's very, very confusing and interesting that they would suggest as a supported upgrade path to go back to version 5.0 SP3. I'm not sure why that is, and if anyone from Microsoft is listening and could maybe clarify this, that would be awesome. You can hit me up on Twitter, at Rory Mon. And now this episode, Scripts, Tricks, and Tips. On last week's episode of the podcast, I mentioned that Mariah Sambu shared his work on a visual overview of Azure Active Directory and integrations and endpoints. Well, version one of the diagram is now complete and available for your viewing pleasure. And I'll share a link to that as I do with everything I talk about on every episode of the podcast over at fivebytespodcast.com. And I got to take part in the awesome virtual expo this week, but aside from taking part, I was also there as an attendee viewing some of the awesome sessions. And I noticed during Guy Leach's session, when he was diving into uh, Windows login performance and um, duration and just what is causing problems and having a poor user experience in terms of the login. And one thing that he said that caught my ear was that active setup is the work of the devil. And I couldn't agree more. And we had a bit of a discussion on Twitter about this just last week as well. And I'll share a link to that thread if you're interested. And one of the weekly webinars that I shared on last week's episode is now available for you to view as a recording. And that was the creating an enterprise ready Windows 365 application experience within 30 minutes using Numesin Cloud Pager that was hosted by myself and my colleague, Ryan Will. So if you haven't seen Numescent Cloud Pager yet and what it can do, I suggest you check out the webinar and check out the demo in particular to get a feel for what it is that Cloud Pager can do. Alex Weinert shared an article on protecting users from MFA fatigue attacks, which is all the rage right now. Um, Several high-profile cyber attacks relied on MFA fatigue attacks as their method. And they say that administering new updates to the Microsoft MFA service like enabling the number matching capabilities and also a map feature showing where access is being attempted from can help deal with these MFA fatigue attacks. And finally, Brian Passe published an article this week on how to remove an unwanted application from Azure AD. So an application in Azure Active Directory is an actual like connection or integration uh, for an application. So you might be setting up like an app registration or something like that. And if you want to make sure you're able to go back and properly clean out any unwanted or unused applications in the future, you should check out this article. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening.